Chapter Five of Clementina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Clementina by A. E. W. Mason. Chapter Five shows that a dishonest landlord should avoid white paint. Wogan, however, was not immediately benefited by his discovery. He knew that if a single whisper of it reached the prince's ear, there would be at once an end to his small chances. The old man would take alarm. He might punish the offender, but he would none the less surely refuse his consent to Wogan's project. Wogan must keep his lips quite closed and let his antagonists do boldly what they would. And that they were active he found a way to discover. The countess from this time plied him with kindness. He must play cards with her and Prince Constantine in the evening. He must take his coffee in her private apartments in the morning. So upon one of these occasions he spoke of his departure from Olau. "'I shall go by way of Prague,' and he stopped in confusion and corrected himself quickly. "'At least I am not sure. There are other ways into Italy.' The countess showed no more concern than she had shown over her harp-string. She talked indifferently of other matters as though she had barely heard his remark. But she fell into the trap. Wogan was aware that the governor of Prague was her kinsman, and that afternoon he left the castle alone, and taking the road to Vienna, turned as soon as he was out of sight, and hurried round to the town until he came out upon the road to Prague. He hid himself behind a hedge a mile from Olau, and had not waited half an hour before a man came riding by in hot haste. The man wore the countess's livery of green and scarlet. Wogan decided not to travel by way of Prague, and returned to the castle content with his afternoon's work. He had indeed more reason to be content with it than he knew, for he happened to have remarked the servant's face as well as his livery, and so at a later time was able to recognize it again. He had no longer any doubt that a servant in the same livery was well upon his way to Vienna. The roads were bad, it was true, and the journey long, but Wogan had not the prince's consent, and could not tell when he would obtain it. The servant might return with the emperor's order for his arrest before he had obtained it. Wogan was powerless. He sent his list of names to Gaden in Schlestadt, but that was the only precaution he could take. The days passed. Wogan spent them in unavailing persuasions, and New Year's Day came and found him still at Olau and in a great agitation and distress. Upon that morning, however, while he was dressing, there came a rap upon his door, and when he opened it he saw the prince's treasurer, a foppish gentleman, very dainty in his words. "'Mr. Warner,' said the treasurer, "'his highness has hinted to me his desires. He has moulded them into the shape of a prayer or a request.' "'In a word he has bidden you,' said Wogan." "'Fie, sir, there's a barbarous and improper word, an ill-sounding word, upon my honour a word without dignity or merit, and banishable from polite speech. His Highness did most prettily entreat me with a fine gentleness of condescension befitting a Sunday or a New Year's Day, to bring and present and communicate from hand to hand a gift, a most incomparable proper gift, the mirror and image of his most incomparable proper friendship.' Wogan bowed, and requested the treasurer to enter and be seated the while he recovered his breath. 
"'Nay, Mr. Warner, I must be concise, puritanical, and unadorned in my language as any raw head or bloody bones. The cruel, irrevocable moments pass. I could consume an hour, sir, before I touched, as I may say, the hem of the reason of my coming.' "'Sir, I do not doubt it,' said Wogan. "'But I will not hinder you from forthwith, immediately, and at once, incorporating with your most particular and inestimable treasures this jewel.' this turquoise of heaven's own charming blue encased and decorated with gold the treasurer drew the turquoise from his pocket it was the size of an egg he placed it in wogan's hand who gently returned it i cannot take it said he gemini cried the treasurer but it is more than a turquoise mr warner jewellers have delved in it it has become subservient to man's necessities it is a snuff-box I cannot take it. King John of Poland, he whom the vulgar call Glorious John, did rescue and enlarge it from its slavery to the Grand Vizier of Turkey at the great battle of Vienna. There is no other in the world. Wogan cut the treasurer short. You will take it again to his highness. You will express to him my gratitude for his kindness, and you will say furthermore these words— Mr. Warner cannot carry back into Italy a present for himself and a refusal for his prince. Wogan spoke with so much dignity that the treasurer had no words to answer him. He stood utterly bewildered. He stared at the jewel. "'Here is a quandary,' he exclaimed. "'I do declare every circumstance of me trembles.' And shaking his head, he went away. But in a little he came again. His Highness distinguishes you, Mr. Warner, with imperishable honours. His Highness solicits your company to a solitary dinner. You shall dine with him alone. His presence and unfettered conversation shall season your soup and be the condiments of your meat. Wogan's heart jumped. There could be only one reason for so unusual an invitation on such a day. And he was not mistaken— for as soon as the prince was served in a little room, he dismissed the lackeys and presented again the turquoise snuff-box with his own hands. "'See, Mr. Wogan, your persuasions and your conduct have gained me over,' said he. "'Your refusal of this bagatelle assures me of your honour. I trust myself entirely to your discretion. I confide my beloved daughter to your care. Take from my hands the gift you refused this morning.' and be assured that no prince ever gave to any man such full powers as I will give to you to-night. Wogan's gratitude well-nigh overcame him. The thing that he had worked for and almost despaired of had come to pass. For a while he could not speak. He flung himself down upon his knees and kissed the prince's hand. That very night he received the letter giving him full powers— and the next morning he drove off in a carriage of his highness drawn by six Polish horses towards the town of Stralen on the road to Prague. At Stralen he stayed a day, feigning a malady, and sent the carriage back. The following day, however, he took horse, and riding along by-roads and lanes, avoided Prague, and hurried towards Schlestadt. He rode watchfully, avoiding towns, and with an eye alert for every passer-by, that he was ahead of any courier from the Emperor at Vienna he did not doubt, but on the other hand the Countess of Berg and the Lady Featherstone had the advantage of him by some four days. There would be no lack of money to hinder him, 
there would be no scruple as to the means. Wogan remembered the moment in his bedroom when he had seen the dagger bright in the moon's rays. If he could not be arrested, there were other ways to stop him. Accidents may happen to any man. However, he rode unhindered with the prince's commission safe against his breast. He felt the paper a hundred times a day to make sure that it was not stolen, nor lost, nor reduced to powder by a miracle. Day by day his fears diminished, since day by day he drew a day's journey nearer to Schlestadt. The paper became a talisman in his thoughts, a thing endowed with magic properties to make him invisible, like the cloak or cap of the fairy tales. Those few lines in writing not a week back had seemed an unattainable prize, yet he had them, and so now they promised him that other unattainable thing, the enlargement of the princess. It was in his nature, too, to grow buoyant in proportion to the difficulties of his task. He rode forward, therefore, with a good heart, and one sombre evening of rain came to a village some miles beyond Augsburg. The village was a straggling half-mile of low cottages, lost, as it were, on the level of a wide plain. Across this plain, bare but for a few lines of poplars and stunted willow-trees, Wogan had ridden all the afternoon, and so little did the thatched cottages break the monotony of the plain's appearance, that though he had had the village within his vision all that while, he had come upon it unawares. The dusk was gathering, and already through the tiny windows the meagre lights gleamed upon the road, and gave to the falling raindrops the look of steel beads. Four days would now bring Wogan to Schlestadt. The road was bad and full of holes. He determined to go no farther that night if he could find a lodging in the village, and, coming upon a man who stood in his path, he stopped his horse. "'Is there an inn where a traveller may sleep?' he asked. "'Assuredly,' replied the man, "'and find forage for his horse. The last house. But I will myself show your honour the way.' "'There is no need, my friend, that you should take a colic,' said Wogan. "'I shall learn enough to correct the colic,' said the man." He had a sack over his head and shoulders to protect him from the rain, and stepped out in front of Wogan's horse. They came to the end of the street and passed on into the open darkness. About twenty yards farther a house stood by itself at the roadside, but there were only lights in one or two of the upper windows, and it held out no promise of hospitality. In front of it, however, the man stopped. He opened the door and halloed into the passage. Wogan stopped, too, and above his head something creaked and groaned like a gibbet in the wind. He looked up and saw a signboard glimmering in the dusk with a new coat of white paint. He had undoubtedly come to the inn, and he dismounted. The landlord advanced at that moment to the door. "'My man,' said he, "'will take your horse to the stable,' and the fellow who had guided Wogan led the horse off. "'Oh, is he your man?' said Wogan. Ah, and he followed the landlord into the house. It was not only the signboard which had been newly painted, for in the narrow passage the landlord stopped Wogan. Have a care, sir, said he, the walls are wet. It will be best if you stand still while I go forward and bring a light. He went forward in the dark and opened a door at the end of the passage. A glow of ruddy light came through the doorway, and Wogan caught a glimpse of a brick-floored kitchen and a great open chimney, and one or two men on a bench before the fire. Then the door was again closed. 
the closing of the door seemed to wogan a churlish act the hospitality said he to himself which plants a man in the road so that a traveller on a rainy night may not miss his bed should at least leave the kitchen door open why should i stay here in the dark wogan went forward and from the careful way in which he walked a way so careful and stealthy indeed that his footsteps made no sound it might have been inferred that he believed the floor to be newly painted too he had at all events no such scruples about the kitchen door for he seized the handle and flung it open quickly he was met at once by a cold draught of wind a door opposite and giving out on to a yard at the back had been opened at precisely the same moment and as wogan stepped in quickly at his door a man stepped quickly out by the door opposite and was lost in the darkness what are you going the landlord cried after him as he turned from the fire at which he was lighting a candle wilhelm has a wife and needs must at once said a woman who was reaching down some plates from a dresser the landlord turned towards the passage and saw wogan in the doorway you found your way sir said he looking at wogan anxiously nor are your walls any poorer of paint on that account said wogan as he took his wet cloak and flung it over a chair the landlord blew out his candle and busied himself about laying the table a great iron pot swung over the fire by a chain and the lid danced on the top and allowed a savoury odour to escape wogan sat himself down before the fire and his clothes began to steam you laugh at my paint sir said the landlord he was a fat good-humoured looking man communicative in his manner as a boniface should be and his wife was his very compliment you laugh at my paint but it is after all a very important thing what is a great lady without her rouge-pot when you come to think of it it is the same with an inn it must wear paint if it is to attract attention and make a profit there is philosophy in the comparison said wogan sir an innkeeper cannot fail of philosophy if he has his eyes and a spark of intelligence the man who took refuge in a tub because the follies of his fellows so angered him was the greatest fool of them all he should have kept an inn on the road to athens for then the follies would have put money into his pocket and made him laugh instead of growl his wife came over to the fireplace and lifted the lid of the pot the supper is ready said she and perhaps sir while you are eating it you can think of a name for my inn why it has a signboard already said wogan and a name too i suppose it has a signboard but without a device said the landlord and while wogan drew a chair to the table he explained his predicament there is another inn five miles along the road and travellers prefer to make their halt there they will not stop here my father sir set it all down to paint it was his dream sir to paint the house from floor to ceiling and his last words bade me pinch and save until i could paint well here is the house painted and i am anxious for a new device and name which shall obliterate the memory of the other the black eagle was its old name ask any traveller familiar with the road between augsburg and schlestadt and he will counsel you to avoid the black eagle you are travelling to schlestadt perhaps wogan had started ever so slightly to strasbourg he said and thereafter ate his supper in silence taking count with himself 
"'My friend,' so his thoughts ran, "'the sooner you reach Schlestadt the better. "'Here you are bleating like a sheep "'at a mere chance mention of your destination. "'You have lived too close with this fine scheme of yours. "'You need your friends.' "'Wogan began to be conscious of an unfamiliar sense of loneliness. "'It grew upon him that evening while he sat at the table. "'It accompanied him up the stairs to bed.' Other men of his age were now seated comfortably by their own hearths, while he was hurrying about Europe, a vagabond adventurer, risking his life for— And at once the reason why he was risking his life rose up to convict him a grumbler. The landlord led him into a room in the front of the house which held a great canopied bed and little other furniture. There was not even a curtain to the window. Wogan raised his candle and surveyed the dingy walls. "'You have not spent much of your new paint on your guest-room, my friend.' "'Sir, you have not marked the door,' said his host reproachfully. "'True,' said Wogan with a yawn. "'The door is admirably white.' "'The frame of the door does not suffer in a comparison.' The landlord raised and lowered his candle that Wogan might see. "'I do not wish to be unjust to the frame of the door,' said Wogan, and drew off his boots." The landlord bade his guest good-night and descended the stairs. Wogan, being a campaigner, was methodical, even though lost in reflection. He was reflecting now why in the world he should lately have become sensible of loneliness, but at the same time he put the prince's letter beneath his pillow and a sheathed hunting-knife beside the letter. He had always been lonely, and the fact had never troubled him. He placed a chair on the left of the bed, and his candle on the chair. Besides, he was not really lonely, having a host of friends whom he had merely to seek out. He took the charges from his pistol, lest they should be damp, and renewed them and placed the pistols by the candle. He had even begun to pity himself for his loneliness, and pity of that sort he recognized was a discreditable quality. The matter was altogether very disquieting. He propped his sword against the chair and undressed. Wogan cast back in his memory for the first sensations of loneliness. They were recent, since he had left Olau, indeed. He opened the window. The rain splashed in on the sill, pattered in the street puddles below, and fell across the country with a continuous roar as though the level plain was a stretched drum. No, he had only felt lonely since he had come near to Schlestadt, since, in a word, he had deemed himself to have outstripped pursuit. He got into his bed and blew out the candle. For a moment the room was black as pitch. Then on his left side the darkness thinned at one point, and a barred square of grey became visible. The square of grey was the window. Wogan understood that his loneliness had come upon him with the respite from his difficulties, and concluded that, after all, it was as well he had not a comfortable fire whereby to sun himself. He turned over on his right side and saw the white door and its white frame. The rain made a dreary sound outside the window, but in three days he would be at Schlestadt. Besides, he fell asleep. And in a little he dreamed. He dreamed that he was swinging on a gibbet before the whole populace of Innsbruck, that he died to his bewilderment without any pain whatever, but that pain came to him after he was quite dead, 
not bodily pain at all, but an anguish of mind because the chains by which he was hanged would groan and creak, and the populace, mistaking that groaning for his cries, scoffed at him and ridiculed his king for sending to rescue the Princess Clementina, a marrowless thing that could not die like a man. Wogan stirred in his sleep and waked up. The rain had ceased, and a light wind blew across the country. Outside the signboard creaked and groaned upon its stanchion. Once he became aware of that sound, he could no longer sleep for listening to it, and at last he sprang out of bed and, leaning out of the window, lifted the signboard off the stanchion and into his bedroom. It was a plain whiteboard without any device on it. True, thought Wogan, the man wants a new name for his inn. He propped the board against the left side of his bed, since that was nearest to the window, got between the sheets, and began to think over names. He turned on his right side and fell asleep again. He was not to sleep restfully that night. He waked again, but very slowly, and without any movement of his body. He lay with his face towards the door, dreamily considering that the landlord, for all his pride in his new paint, had employed a bad workman who had left a black strip of the door unpainted, a fairly wide strip, too, which his host should never have overlooked. Wogan was lazily determining to speak to the landlord about it when his half-awakened mind was diverted by a curious phenomenon, a delusion of the eyes such as he had known to have befallen him before when he had stared for a long while on any particular object. The strip of black widened and widened. Wogan waited for it to contract, as it would be sure to do, but it did not contract, and so Wogan waked up completely. He waked up with a shock of the heart, with all his senses startled and strained, but he had been gradually waking before, and so by neither movement nor cry did he betray that he was awake. He had not locked the door of his room. That widening strip of black ran vertically down from the lintel to the ground, and between the white door and the white door-frame. The door was being cautiously pushed open. The strip of black was the darkness of the passage coming through. Wogan slid his hand beneath his pillow and drew the knife from its sheath as silently as the door opened. The strip of black ceased to widen. There was a slight scuffling sound upon the floor which Wogan was at no loss to understand. It was the sound of a man crawling into the room upon his hands and knees. Wogan lay on his side and felt grateful to his host, an admirable man, for he had painted his door white, and now he crawled through it on his hands and knees. No doubt he would crawl to the side of the bed. He did. To feel, no doubt, for Mr. Wogan's coat and breeches and any little letter which might be hiding in the pockets. But here Wogan was wrong, for he saw a dark thing suddenly on the counterpane at the edge of the bed. The dark thing travelled upwards very softly. It had four fingers and a thumb. It was, no doubt, travelling towards the pillow. And as soon as it got there... But Wogan, watching that hand beneath his dosed eyelids, had again to admit that he was wrong. It did not travel towards the pillow. To his astonishment it stole across towards him. It touched his chest very gently, and then he understood. The hand was creeping upwards towards his throat. Meanwhile Wogan had seen no face, though the face must be just below the level of the bed. 
He only saw the hand and the arm behind it. He moved as if in his sleep, and the hand disappeared. As if in his sleep, he flung out his left arm and felt for the signboard standing beside his bed. The bed was soft. Wogan wanted something hard, and it had occurred to him that the signboard would very well serve his turn. An idea, too, which seemed to him diverting, had presented itself to his mind. With a loud sigh and a noisy movement such as a man halfway between wakefulness and sleep may make, he flung himself over onto his left side. At the same moment he lifted the signboard onto the bed. It seemed that he could not rest on his left side, for he flung over again to his right and pulled the bedclothes over as he turned. The signboard now lay flat upon the bed, but on the right side between himself and the man upon the floor. His mouth uttered a little murmur of contentment. He drew down the hand beneath the pillow, and in a second was breathing regularly and peacefully. The hand crept onto the bed again and upwards, and suddenly lay spread out upon the board and quite still. Just for a second the owner of that hand had been surprised and paralyzed by the unexpected. It was only that second which Wogan needed. He sat up, and with his right arm he drove his hunting-knife down into the back of the hand and pinned it fast to the board. With his left he felt for, found, and gripped the mouth already open to cry out. He dropped his hunting-knife, caught the intruder round the waist, lifted him onto the bed, and setting a knee upon his chest, gagged him with an end of the sheet. The man fought wildly with his free hand, beating the air. Wogan knelt upon that arm with his other knee. Wogan needed a rope, but since he had none he used the sheets and bound his prisoner to the bed. Then he got up and went to the door. The house was quite silent, quite dark. Wogan shut the door gently, there was no key in the lock, and bending over the bed looked into the face of his assailant. The face was twisted with pain, the whites of the eyes glared horribly, but Wogan could see that the man was his landlord. He stood up and thought. There was another man who had met him in the village and had guided him to the inn. There was still a third who had gone out of the kitchen as Wogan had entered it. There was the wife, too, who might be awake. Wogan crossed to the window and looked out. The window was perhaps twenty feet from the ground, but the stanchion was three feet below the window. He quickly put on his clothes, slipped the letter from under his pillow into a pocket, strapped his saddle-bag, and lowered it from the window by a blanket. He had already one leg on the sill when a convulsive movement of the man on the bed made him stop. He climbed back into the room, drew the knife out of the board and out of the hand pinned to the board, and, making a bandage, wrapped the wound up. "'You must lie there till morning, my friend,' Wogan whispered in his ear. "'But here's a thing to console you. "'I have found a name for your inn. "'I have painted the device upon your signboard. "'The Inn of the Five Red Fingers. "'There's never a passer-by but will stop to inquire the reason of so conspicuous a sign.' "'And Wogan climbed out of the window, "'lowered himself till he hung at the full length of his arms from the stanchion, "'and dropped on the ground.' He picked up his saddle-bag and crept round the house to the stable. The door needed only a push to open it. In the hayloft above he heard a man snoring. Mr. Wogan did not think it worth while to disturb him. He saddled his horse, walked it out into the yard, 
mounted, and rode quietly away. He had escaped, but without much credit to himself. There was no key in the door, he thought. I should have noticed it. Misset, the man of resources, would have tilted a chair backwards against that door with its top bar wedged beneath the door handle. Certainly Wogan needed Misset if he was to succeed in his endeavour. He was sunk in humiliation. His very promise to rescue the princess shrank from its grandeur and became a mere piece of impertinence. But he still had his letter in his pocket, and in time that served to enhearten him. Only two more days, he thought. On the third night he would sleep in Schlestadt. End of chapter 5